So I am both excited and terrified in this moment. Uh, I've preached here before. I've seen many of your faces laughing at me. I mean, listening along. And I felt not near the weight when I candidated that I feel now, partly because, because God has started the process of, of molding my life story and Bethel's life story and my family along with that in, into one cohesive story. And then the weight of, of looking at God's word is, it's honestly almost overwhelming to me and there's not much in life that I could say that about. So, We're going to start this morning with my moment up here, praying again that God would allow us to be ready for for his word. Father, we come to you, and we need you in this moment. We've sung about you being on your throne, reigning in glory And we want our lives to match that reality. But Lord, we are inept as people. I am inept as a man. And we ask that you would use your spirit to move in our hearts and to strengthen us so that you would be glorified in us. As we look at your word and as we seek to understand what we're doing, we pray that you would guide us and teach us and mold us and cause us to recognize our utter dependence on you. It is in the amazing and holy name of your son we pray. Amen. So there's a couple of things that you'll probably notice will be different. There's probably a lot of things that would be different, but a couple of things that I know will be different uh, just in how I function versus how other people function. First of all, they kept asking me over different times, what would you like for sermon notes? And this is what I gave them. This is frequently what you're going to see because my goal is not to transmit a certain amount of information to you. And in my mind, whether it's true for other people or not, I don't know, but in my mind, notes that somebody else tells you to fill in in a certain way feels more like information dumping than looking at Jesus. So this will be intentionally blank for you to put down how the Holy Spirit is calling you to grow from what we've learned. But that makes us have to step back for just a moment and say, well, why are we here? If that's sort of the end goal, why are we here? It's actually a really good question. I don't mean why are we here sort of existentially on earth. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm more referring to why am I here standing on the stage in this moment? What's the purpose Why does the band show up at 7.45 in the morning before the sun has come up to practice? Why is time put into organizing a service in in a particular way? Why do we do it? I'm gonna break one of my rules. And it's odd for me to break a rule on week one, which almost feels like 
I have no rule, but, but I do have a rule. My goal in preaching, uh, in, in the, the homiletical side, the actual presenting of the message side, is that I don't have to tell you explicitly what the main point of the sermon is, because if you can't catch it in 30 minutes of me sharing the scripture to you, I did something really wrong. And so normally I'm not going to tell you what it is, but this morning I'm going to tell you what the main point of the message is as we look at what is the purpose of preaching, which would include all of the gathering of believers for service. The purpose is to exalt Christ. By expositing his word, that means taking what's there and drawing it out so that we see Christ, so that because of that, we can exhort each other to live like him. That is the purpose. And now I have given you all the information and ammunition you need, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but ammunition you need to evaluate what goes on. Because let's be honest, we know we're going to do it. I know, and you know, that in time, we're all going to evaluate what happens on stage on Sunday morning. What did Brock say? You, you should be taking that back to Scripture and seeing how it compares to Scripture, but in general, we're going to evaluate. That's what we do as people. What we must make sure of is that we evaluate what goes on based on what we are intending to accomplish. And what we are intending to accomplish from the very first thing that happens in the service to the very end of the service, we are attempting to accomplish the exalting of Christ by the expositing of his word so we can exhort his people to follow him. That's the purpose. So when it comes time for you to evaluate me, which I want you to do, when it comes time for us all together to evaluate what happens, that's what we use. So how do we get there? Normally, you wouldn't start by sharing, you know, the final point before you start the message. So how do we get to that point? I remember vividly I have read the book of John multiple times. I've preached through it. And when I went to go preach through it the last time, we're not going to do it here. It took a hundred sermons to go through it, which seems like a really long time, but it's a really big book. We went through it, and as I was studying it, I was absolutely struck by the verses we're going to read this morning. The verses we're going to start with this morning, rather. John chapter 5 verses 39 and 40. It's important to know that this is Jesus speaking and he's speaking to the Pharisees who are like the greatest studiers of the Bible ever, memorizing the entire Old Testament, Genesis all the way through. And here's what he says to them. John chapter five, beginning in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So why didn't that stood out to Brock and it hit me so hard? In my studying of scripture, we have a tendency to start to think that studying scripture is what gives us life. It's the word of life, right? It's the living word. That's what we refer to it as. 
but it's the living word because of who it points to, because it points to Jesus. I don't want to ever give the impression in any way that we are going to not exposit the word. But if we exposit the word in sermons or in studies or in our devotions over the value of Christ and seeing Christ in the word, then we are doing what the Pharisees did here where they searched the scriptures. This is like investigation, diligent searching, hours of time. And he says that it's all for naught because they're doing it for the wrong reason. They think that it will please God that they are studying scripture. They think that it will make God love them more, appreciate them more, give them life because of it. And Jesus says, no. The scriptures point to me. Which ones? We have an entire book of them. Which scriptures is he referring to? Obviously, the New Testament points to Jesus. We have the Gospels, which means good news, which is the life of Jesus on earth, but that's not what he's referring to. How do we know that? They weren't written yet. He was still living it. They hadn't written it. That means they certainly hadn't written any of the epistles because those all came after he ascended into heaven. He's referring to the Old Testament. So when Jesus says that they're searching the scriptures, but they're missing him in the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. So if ever you come to a moment or hear a preacher, which there are too many of, who say the Old Testament is not needed, they're wrong. Because Jesus makes it clear that those point to him. So if we study those just to know what they say, we also are wrong because we are missing Christ in the scriptures. He's the one who gives life to us. We exalt him. We, we see him as the most important, the most valuable. Paul takes this idea and expounds on it to one of maybe my favorite passages in scripture, which is Colossians chapter one, verses 15, and many following actually, but we'll look at 15 to 18 really quickly. It says that he, every time it talks about he or him, which there are a lot of that pronoun, it's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is therefore before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And preeminent is not a word that we throw around at all in our culture. In fact, I wasn't even totally sure how to spell it. You know how you've got autocorrect on your phone and on your computer, it underlines things? That's really helpful for people like me. But then when I go to write it on a piece of paper, I'm like, I don't really know if this is right. I looked it up four different times to make sure that I was spelling it right. I now know how to spell it. There are two E's in preeminent. And that was the part that was getting me. Anyway, there are two E's in preeminent. 
What does it mean? It's a word that's there that we don't use often. What does it mean? It means not just first place, but imagine it means first, first, first place. It's not the top. It's the pinnacle of the top. It's not just the pinnacle of the top. It's the imaginary pinnacle of the pinnacle of the top. That's where Christ resides. And if Christ is going to be that, right, that peak, that pinnacle, that preeminence, should it stop when we're preaching? Should it stop when we're singing? Should it stop when we're reading the word of God? No. That's where Paul takes these words of Christ where he says that the scriptures point to him and he's the one that gives life and he expounds on it and says, no, it, it is true that he gives life, but it's even more than that. He's preeminent, predominant, first, first, first place in everything we do. So when time comes to evaluate me or evaluate us or evaluate the elders or the staff or anybody, that is the grid the filter through what we must evaluate. Are we exalting Christ as first? That's step one. And then are we expositing the word? Is this just Brock saying what Brock feels and thinks? Okay, I don't have much for feelings. I do, but they don't show quite like most people do. I'm not going to be run by them but you could ask, is this just what Brock thinks or feels about this passage or about life? And, and if I were to ever stand here and share with you just what I think, that would be pointless. I don't have enough good thoughts for that. But we have the scripture that points to Jesus who gives life. Chris and I were talking, texting, this last week about, about some ideas we had for, for how to, to do some things here. And a, a time of studying the scripture came into our conversation. What could we do to help people know how to study scripture as well as they can? Because I took a 16-week course three hours a week in seminary, three hours of class per week in seminary, plus three hours of work outside of class every week in my hermeneutics class, my studying of scripture class. I think we should all, no. <laughs> we shouldn't. It's not the time that we have to it. So, so if what we put out there is like this, this giant, insurmountable, unaccomplishable task of studying the scripture, you know what happens? We don't. We don't study it. So Chris and I started the conversation of what can we do to help the body learn from what we've been taught for how they can study scripture in a way that's, that's effective still exegeting it, still trying to draw what is in the text into what we understand, but also doable. We haven't concluded all of that yet. But we're working on it, and it's something that we're trying to figure out how to pull off as well as we can. And I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the possibilities of it because as we, when we as a people study his word to see him, he will change us. That's the exhorting component. Exhorting sounds bad, 
but it's really not. It's almost like a, a coach, not the coach who's yelling at you because you're doing it wrong, but the coach who's teaching you how to do it right. Showing you, telling you, pushing you, encouraging you. Sometimes that encouraging feels more like prodding. It doesn't always feel happy. And sometimes that's what the Spirit does to us as we study His Word. He encourages us to follow Him, which sometimes means He shows us where we're not, which feels less than enjoyable at times. But it, ex it exhorts us to be like Christ. And if we don't get to that end, right, the, the first part of seeing Christ is great. It's the most important component because without it, Without the scriptures showing us Christ so we can see him, we can't follow him right. But if we never get to following him right, then that doesn't mean that this process that we're talking about is wrong. It means that we've done it wrong. Because if we truly see Jesus for who he is, and we truly love him, we will truly want to be like him. Truly want to follow him. And that's what we see. That's what we see in people. That's what we see in the apostles. As they know Christ and they depend on him, they begin to look like him because they want to emulate him. They want to look like him because they love him. Not they want him to love them so they try to look like him. If you get that order backwards, then we miss the point of the passages because the passages are to point out Christ so that we can follow him and be like him because we love him. They're not to tell us moral things, nice things, good things to do. That's not what they're for. They are to show us Christ. And so that in loving him, by loving him, we can follow him and look like him. When we start talking about life in Christ, I have a fly buzzing around in my hair. So this, oh, anyway. Because if I don't say to you what's distracting me, then I'm just going to be really confused for a little while. So let's just admit that Brock lost his whole mind there for a second. When we look at life, when we look at Christ, we look at scripture, it's important for us to remember something. Uh, back in the book of John, right? We started in John chapter five where Jesus is talking about life, but John chose to put certain things in this book, right? He actually writes at the end of this book that if he were to try to put everything in this book that he wrote, it would be too big to write. He starts with this idea of life and he says this about Jesus. First, or in John chapter one, verse two, and then skipping to verse 12. He was in the beginning Okay, I think I wrote something down wrong because that's not right. It's verse four. I don't know how I got my mind. It, it, it was not their fault. I gave them the wrong reference. I will make lots of mistakes and my goal is for you to laugh at me for them. I won't feel bad. Let's just, let's just acknowledge that. So, he was in the beginning with God, verse two. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Down to verse 12. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what that life gives us, the right to become children of God. Jesus, John starts his entire gospel uh, pointing out that Jesus is that life, that life that came down from God to give us the opportunity to follow him. Go back to chapter five. What does he finish this portion with? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and is they that bear witness about me yet. So he gives the purpose statement that because is a purpose word. You search them because for the reason that it gives you life yet, he says, contrasting that, it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There's an element to where they're intended to have a response to this. Back to the exhorting component. We exalt Christ because he is preeminent. We expound, we exegete the word. We draw out what is there so that we can share it and know it so that we can exhort each other and so that the spirit would exhort us to looking like Jesus. That's gonna look a lot of different ways for us as people. And unfortunately, I told somebody this morning that I kind of felt like a politician. So only one way I feel this, so, so bear with me for just a moment. I walk down the aisle and people smile at me and say hi and they know who I am. And I've not met them to my knowledge. So I smile and say hi and I'm thinking, I don't know your name. You obviously come here because you're here, um, but I don't know your name. And so you're going to have to give me some time to learn your names, right? And in learning your names and getting to know who you are, will it be able to better understand each other on what it then looks like to follow Jesus? How we can play that out. But it's not my job in this moment, maybe any moment standing up front, to tell you how the Holy Spirit wants you to play this out in particulars. In concept, yes. There's two main ways that, that we're going to look at this in concept or that this points us in concept. Way one is that our lives turn to look like Jesus, right? That's the exhorting component. And as our lives turn to look like Jesus, we're told that we will share him with the people around us. The Great Commission while you're going, literally how you would translate it, while you're out going about your business, share the gospel and make disciples. That's what it's about. It's all through the New Testament that that's what we're called to do. Paul tells Timothy to not forsake the role of the evangelist, right? Timothy's a pastor. Do you realize that pastors, the hardest thing for us to cultivate is relationships with non-Christian people? Because I'm going to presume that you all are. And the Holy Spirit knows what's going on. I don't have most of my time spent in a world of unbelievers. I just don't. I'll get to know some people through the coffee shops, through golfing, through all sorts of different things. 
I'll get to know a few people. But some of you get the opportunity to work with 10, 15, 100 unbelievers every day. And I don't have that opportunity. So while you're out there going through your life, you're sharing the gospel, you're making disciples. So Paul tells Timothy, don't forsake the role of the evangelist. Why? Because it's easy for pastors to sort of hole up and not know the culture, not know the people around them, the community around them. So it's part of my job to do that. And if it's part of my job to do that, as somebody intentionally having to go out and find those people, it should be part of all of our jobs to do that, immersed in that world for those of us who are. So there's two different ways that we're always going to see that we can follow Christ through the scriptures. One, by having our lives changed, actions changed, motives changed, thoughts changed, intents changed. And having our desire then move to how can we share Christ with those who don't know him? What's the purpose of preaching? The purpose of preaching is not for me to stand here, to wear nice clothes, to say nice things so that nice people can feel nice about their nice lives. It's not the goal. It's not the purpose. It's not the intent. I may wear nice clothes at times. You may be nice people at times. I might be a nice person at times. The goal isn't to extol our niceness. It's to found ourselves on the scriptures. I have with me, there are few things in life possessions that actually have a deep meaning to me. And this is one of them. This is not my Bible. Well, it is my Bible now, but I've rarely read this Bible. So if it looks used, it's not from me. This was my great grandpa's family Bible. I'm not sure of the date, but I think it's early 1900s. It's the King James authorized version it doesn't read like I read, right? But when you take the time to study it, you know what it says? It says the same thing that my Bible says. Phrased slightly differently, certainly spoken in a language that I'm not intimately familiar with, but it says the same thing as mine. When we found ourselves on the word, it's the same word that my great-grandpa founded their lives on. It's the same word that all of church history, post-apostles, founded their lives on as, as they used it to know Christ. If we're not in this, reading it, knowing it, we shouldn't possibly think that we can see Christ. Peter actually makes that perfectly clear to us. Well, perfectly clear as we understand what he's really saying. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. I remember when my pastor in college explained this to me. I didn't know it. I remember him explaining it to me. Here's what it says. 2 Peter 1, 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day draw till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts but what does that first part mean we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed more fully confirmed than what right you see something like that rule number 1 of bible study when you see something that you have a question about that doesn't make sense you should try to figure out what that is and in this case we just back up a little bit and we see what he says he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. What holy mountain? Do you remember the story of the transfiguration? So here we've got Peter on the top of a mountain with James and John, and Jesus is there, and Jesus lifts off the ground and just hovers, starts to glow. And then two angels or prophets come down from heaven, Moses and Elijah, and they have a conversation. Okay? That would be a pretty incredible experience, right? Peter says that we have the scriptures which are more fully confirmed, more sure than his experience of seeing the transfiguration. And if Peter can say that this is more sure of who Christ is than him seeing the transfiguration, the guy wanted to build a house for these three majesties to live in. And he says that this is more fully confirmed than that. Why bring that up? Because we have a tendency, because we are temporal people, to let our experiences trump our scriptures. And we cannot do that. We must found ourselves on this. Because when we found ourselves on this and exposit this, we can exalt Christ so we can exhort each other to look like him. That is the purpose of preaching, the purpose of our worship service and if ever we deviate from that, tell us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing still, Lord, that we are inept people to even be, to be ready to, to see you and understand you, to glorify you the way that we should. We ask, Father, that you would, we ask that you would use your spirit to continue to mold us and shape us. I pray, Father, for myself. I pray for Julie, the worship team, the AV guys, everyone who's got anything going on in this service. Lord, I pray for all of us that you allow our focus to always be the exaltation of you by the exhorting of your word. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in us in that, and that you continue to change us and shape us and mold us as we learn to depend on you more and more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.